Welcome to Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. I'm Trevor Perry Giles, the Executive Director of the National Communication Association. The National Communication Association is the preeminent scholarly association devoted to the study and teaching of communication. Founded in 1914, NCA is a thriving group of thousands from across the nation and around the world who are committed to a collective mission to advance communication as an academic discipline. In keeping with NCA's mission to advance the discipline of communication, NCA has developed this podcast series to expand the reach of our member scholars' work and perspectives. This is Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. And in this episode of Communication Matters, I'm really fortunate to be speaking with Joelle M. Cruz, Assistant Professor in the College of Media, Communication, and Information at the University of Colorado Boulder. Dr. Cruz was recently honored as the first recipient of NCA's Orlando L. Taylor Distinguished Scholarship Award in Africana Communication. The Taylor Award honors a scholar whose body of work demonstrates a sustained commitment to the study of African American and or the African diaspora communication and culture. Dr. Cruz's research in the area of alternative organizing contributes significantly to understanding ways that black women grapple with entrepreneurship in post-conflict situations in both Africa and the United States. Richly sourced and engaging, Dr. Cruz's scholarship demonstrates that other compelling ideas can reside at the center of intellectual thought, including African and African-American feminist theories and organizing. Already this boundary-altering young scholar has published 11 journal articles and five book chapters and gained international recognition for research on transnational institutional dynamics surrounding the African diaspora. So in this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Cruz about the research that she's done on alternative organizing, black feminist thought, and indigenous organizing. But as an added bonus, before talking with Dr. Cruz, I'm thrilled to introduce Dr. Orlando L. Taylor, in whose honor the new award was named. Dr. Taylor is currently the Distinguished Senior Advisor to the President at Fielding Graduate University. Dr. Taylor's research focuses on communication disorders and linguistics, and he's been a leading advocate for access and equity in higher education and was the first African-American president of NCA. Hey, Orlando, it's great to see you, and thanks for coming on Communication Matters. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. You've spent much of your career advocating for access and equity in higher ed. Uh, Could you offer some perspective on what this award means and how it advances that agenda to achieve greater equity and access in higher education? Well, thank you, Trevor. That's really an important question, and I must say that it's really heart-rendering to see this moment happen, to really sit next to the first recipient of this award, It's all about her. It's not about me at all. It really is a moment when we really celebrate and recognize the significant contribution, not only of African Americans, but people of color and communication, and especially looking at topics that relate to the global context of African, uh, Africana communication. And I think it's significant that her work is focused on women. Uh, Much of the work in gender studies has focused uh, disproportionately on uh, women, uh, white women, uh, not that much, some, but not enough on women of African-American women, uh, African women in the African context. And so to expand the boundaries, to expand the borders of the subject of gender and diversity and inclusion to include this perspective is extremely important. And I'm extremely honored 
to be able to sit next to uh, Dr. Cruz today and to and to be a part of recognizing her for her work and to uh, celebrate what she's contributed. What would you say is the contribution from uh, Dr. Cruz and other younger African-American scholars and scholars of Africana communication to the communication discipline more broadly? Number one, I think that it's important to note that we have a significant increase in the, in, uh, the, the presence of um, African-Americans and other persons from the African diaspora in the field of communication. Back when I first became a member of what was then the Speech Communication Association in the late 1960s, uh, I was telling Dr. Cruz earlier, uh, I think most African-Americans knew all the other African-American members. And today, where we have such a large network of persons, persons from a variety of institutions, studying a variety of things, not just limited to issues around African, uh, African-American communication, speaks to the universality of uh, the discipline and one that recognizes that for us to be truly um, in- inclusive to do research, to, uh, to advance theory, uh, to advance practice in communication, we really have to do it taking it in, in a way that takes into account the diversity of our people, not only in this country, but around the world. In the early days, of course, when we talked about African-American communication, the focus was often on um, a disorder, for example. Uh, often these uh, persons who spoke uh, varieties of American English that reflected African, uh, African uh, heritage were often thought to be uh, appropriate for special education. Or uh, another approach was uh, the stereotypes that often appeared in the, in the media through minstrel shows, uh, through uh, a comedy that kind of uh, made a buffoonery model out of communication in the African-American community. So what we see today is a much broader notion about the contributions of African people from around the world and to what communication is about. We really legitimize the notion that people communicate very appropriately within the context of their cultures and their histories. It is our responsibility as scholars to document and codify uh, those behaviors so that we can have a better understanding of the human condition. That's a great segue to our discussion with Dr. Cruz and uh, uh, probing a little bit more about what uh, your research is all about. And But first, before I do that, I want to congratulate you. This is very exciting for all of us at NCA to have the inaugural recipient of the Orlando Taylor Award. So many people in our discipline and in the association worked hard to bring this award to fruition. And so it's thrilling to have you here and uh, to be able to talk to you about your research. The segue that I thought of from what Orlando was talking about has to do with uh, what exactly you're interested in, which is this alternative organizing, because I think Orlando's right. It is a direct sort of advancement of how we've talked about um, diverse communication practices. And I'm interested in having you tell us a little bit more about what alternative organizing is all about. Thank you so much. I'm uh, so honored to be here today with you and to be the recipient of that award. So in terms of alternative organizing, really, uh, here we're thinking about uh, alternative organizing on two levels, really. First, really, it's about underrepresented forms of organizing when we think about uh, the field of organizational communication. 
And then secondly, uh, you can also think about alternative organizing in terms of how we even understand organizing or organization in everyday life. For many people, we think, tend to think of organizations only as corporations or businesses still. So on the contrary, alternative organizing includes social movements, grassroots organizing, indigenous organizing, and community-based uh, organizing as well. So these would be all uh, forms of uh, alternatives. So beyond talking about alternative types of organizing, how else does this approach and your research to alternative organizing challenge or push or advance uh, existing OrgCom scholarship? Great. Uh, so that's a wonderful question and very important, too. So we can think about this research really as uh, first decolonizing uh, the field of organizational communication, which has tended to uh, center and focus on, uh, again, normative modes of organizing, including, you know, corporations, businesses, and to some extent also nonprofits, but also centered those in Western contexts. And here we're thinking specifically about the dominance of the United States in that type uh, of work. There is very rarely uh, research that has been done um, uh, even within the U.S. on black communities, there is some, and here I acknowledge the work of Patricia Parker, uh, Brenda sure. Allen, for instance. Uh, but uh, it's still quite rare, even uh, within the U.S., to look at uh, black uh, people. And it's even uh, more, uh, I mean, harder to find when you uh, examine Africa, mm -hmm. actually, where that research, again, needs to grow. And um, yes, we need to work and and do more of that work. And you've been specifically interested with or organizing in Liberia. Correct? Yes, correct. So can you tell us a little bit more about the, what are, the, what are they called, the Susu groups? The Susu groups. In, in Liberia and the extent to which the conflict nature of Liberian politics over the last, I don't know, decades right. has influenced this form and practice of uh, alternative organizing. Sure. So I'll start by defining uh, the Susu groups. These are uh, pre-colonial indigenous types of forms that exist not just in Liberia, but in many other parts of West Africa. And these are um, community banks that women put together to be able to raise money. And this is really helpful for people who don't have access to banks. So for instance, you put four people together. You say that each day, each person is going to donate to the bank $5. You have $20. And each person then uh, it uh, takes a turn okay. and uh, cashes the $20. And that allows you, if you have a small business, to, uh, to go and buy you know, more supplies for your mm -hmm. business. Again, very uh, helpful uh, when you don't have access to banking. So that's the SUSU. In terms of uh, thinking about um, the second part of the question, which How was, they operate within the sort of conflictual context of Liberian politics and the Liberian economy. Right. I'm curious about how how these groups, which remind me sort of of like microloan programs right. uh, in Bangladesh and other places uh -huh. in Asia, uh, how do they operate within the Liberian context specifically? Yes. So these were really uh, very important, uh, both during the war and also in post-conflict times. They've had remarkable continuity, if you think about both you know, contexts. And uh, so during war, for instance, uh, the misconception is that they, have, they had collapsed entirely, but in fact, it was not the case, which showcases the resilience of those structures. People started back Susu during the war when uh, 
there was uh, some type of period that was calmer than you know other times. So they would resume and stop, resume and stop. Wow. And then right after uh, the war, 2003, they uh, reorganized you know more permanently. And they were able, uh, that's also a key characteristic of those resilient structures, to put themselves back together extremely okay. fast. And that was based really, that's my claim on uh, the fact that they're really uh, trust-based and, and, and they're bounded, if you want, by human interactional types of okay. ties and communication is key to that. But uh, they rely uh, not as much on material resources, which means that they can operate very quickly without a building, without supplies, without even uh, that much money. I would think that this would contribute pretty significantly to uh, research that's underway about resilience generally, you know, because that's such a powerful concept, I guess, in right. contemporary communication research. Right. I'm also really interested in how you study these groups because black feminist autoethnography or black feminist ethnography generally is sounds fascinating and I'm right. curious if you could talk a little bit more about how that works how you do it uh, all of that so uh, I'm embedded in you know black feminist um, frameworks but also for that project I use more specifically an African feminist type of ethnography which is my take on black feminist mm -hmm. ethnography and that one really was based on three principles that I've really uh, worked around in, in my work so the first principle if you think about it black feminist or African feminist ethnography specifically would be the principle of uh, holism that's one which would be um, embedded in worldviews that are not binaries and that are very holistic so uh, here, rather than thinking of uh, distinctions that are usual even in Western feminisms, like private versus public, mm -hmm. man versus woman, right? Uh, we think of uh, this African context as um, context where people blur these distinctions very easily. And the example in terms of the market woman was that the market in itself, where they did their work, was also a space for community. So it wasn't just a workspace. Children came in and out freely. Hmm. Uh, men partners came in out and 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 in also freely here. So that's holism. But there's also a principle then of collectivity, hmm. which uh, is based on holism. And uh, this is telling us that African feminisms and consider the group rather than the individual as a unit of analysis. And in that sense, the sister groups exemplify this principle, because it was not just about us saving money. In a Western logic, it would make sense that I'm just using the group to get my money right. out. But here, what was really even more important was to organize as a group and to have that group fulfill that function of collectivism mm -hmm. beyond just um, cashing out money. Real community building. Right. Yeah, that's great. Yes. Third principle was situa situationality, which tells us that uh, people and, and, and the women I was looking at within that context value uh, really um, being able to respond to a variety of shifting conditions uh, in context. And that uh, that response can be varied. Uh, so I'll give you an example. Uh, the groups, for instance, sometimes chose to be invisible. Mm -hmm and sometimes uh, also chose to be very visible by making themselves known to the market authority, which hmm. didn't always uh, knew they existed. And that was all based on situation and is this advantageous for me right sure. now to That's do? Right. 
That's really fascinating. Yes. That's great. And then you went to Liberia and what did interviews? You uh, did you work um, amongst this group? Did you just talk to a wide range of people? Talk about the ethnography side of all of this. Sure. So I did um, a market ethnography uh, during um, 2011, actually, for my dissertation, which was based in a food market in Liberia. Oh, cool. And uh, during that time, I conducted about 100 hours of, um, you know, participant observation. That entailed me going every morning to the market around 8 until 5 and um, observing, uh, then going off-site to take notes uh, in between because I couldn't take notes in, notes in the market, sure. really. Uh, people weren't comfortable. Right. Over time, as I built, you know, relationships with the woman, they allowed me to eventually start selling for them at some point. So then I also <laughs> took a more active role towards the end, especially. That's great. Where I would sell some market items. Right. They started calling me, uh, for some of them, my daughter. Nice. And uh, outside the market, uh, on occasions, I was recognized. And sometimes people would even say, oh, that woman is selling in the market. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> so funny. So that was quite funny. Would you call this a form of uh, indigenous organizing as well? Yes, absolutely. Okay. okay. Absolutely. Is there anything particular to indigenous epistemologies uh, and the you know precarity of indigeneity in some of these cultures that has an impact on the ways in which they collectively organize? Do you think? Oh, that's such a great question. I think with the three principles I was um, right. bringing up, I was trying to get at that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, especially the holism and collectivism that are getting, uh, at least in West Africa, at particular indigenous types of worldviews that okay. do not center, again, the individual per se, right, right. but rather the group as a unit. I belong to a group and I make sense of myself and I even communicate uh, as much as I'm able to articulate my relation to other groups mm -hmm. as opposed to a person on her own or his own. So I think that was uh, really where some of the indigenous bids or parts came yeah, through. Yeah, it's a really nice combination of sort of a feminist epistemology and a feminist outlook alongside this indigenous right. outlook. I think that's fascinating. Finally, I'd be interested in your thoughts on what your research and what this whole different orientation might mean for the future of communication research more broadly. How do we rethink and how do we reconceptualize both practically and also sort of epistemologically, I suppose, what your work can tell us about where generally communication research needs to go? Perhaps the, the first one, as we ask these questions, uh, is would be the people who, are, who we are identifying are the agents that are important in making this happen. And obviously, there's a researcher like myself, right? Uh, for anybody who wants to do that work, I, I think it takes, um, it's a commitment. It's um, labor intensive, not just in the regular sense that research requires labor, but also uh, that process and that work on decolonizing, I think, also uh, sometimes can be extra work, actually, because I think it's a responsibility that we have to show people that actually there is another way that this way is as acceptable and as valid uh, than, you know, dominant types of models or norms. So for those doing that work, I would say, uh, you know, be brave and committed. That's really key. But also I would say that it's not just up to us, but to a variety of other gatekeepers, including, you know, other scholars in our own subfield, but also to organizations like, uh, for instance, NCA, 
which has, uh, has been uh, over the, the years uh, showcasing that type of work and making way for us to actually uh, be able even to to see that and envision this as a possibility and to you know undertake these types of projects. So that's also key. And then I would expand that even to journal journals in the field, where sometimes, again, uh, it can be challenging for people doing that work. At various stages, I think uh, the responsibility should be shared and, um, you know, acknowledge that it's also a collective in the tradition of African feminisms too, right? Orlando needs to add a final thought. Yes, I I think that uh, what we just heard from Dr. Cruz really speaks to the importance of this work to the whole discipline of communication, that uh, the scholarship that we do is really a quest for truth, truth with a capital T, if you will, and Historically, we've looked more often at Western models of communication. We've really not taken into account, in a serious way, models of communication that come from outside the Western part of the globe. And so at the early stages of our work in advancing uh, African uh, Africana communication in the, in the discipline, Many people thought we're trying to make a political statement. We just really want to do this because it's the right thing to do with civil rights and all of that. No, it's bigger than that. It's about really a quest for truth. And this research that Dr. Cruz has just described gives us a really a great sense that truth exists in many forms. And it's the totality of truths that we can identify that gets us closer to understanding truth in the total human uh, context. That's a great way to wrap it up. So thank you, Orlando. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, having an award in Africana communication is exactly what uh, uh, a fulfillment of what you're trying to envision. Again, thanks to everybody for joining us. On a sad note, all of us at NCA are mourning the passing in January of two past presidents, James Chesborough and Kenneth Anderson. Professor Chesborough passed away on January 21st, and Dr. Anderson on January 26th. James Chesborough served as NCA's 82nd president in 1996. As David McMahon wrote in a tribute to Jim, with Jim's passing, the discipline of communication has lost one of its giants. He dedicated himself to the promotion and development of the discipline through his scholarship, through his extraordinary record of service, and through a countless number of students and colleagues who continue to be influenced by his exceptional teaching and guidance. Among numerous awards for scholarship and service and teaching, Jim was the recipient of NCA's Golden Anniversary Monograph Award, the Samuel L. Becker Distinguished Service Award, the Robert J. Kibler Memorial Award, the Donald H. Eckroyd Award for Outstanding Teaching in Higher Education, and the Wallace A. Bacon Lifetime Teaching Excellence Award. And from ECA, the Eastern Communication Association, Chesborough received the Everett Lee Hunt Award and was a Distinguished Research Fellow and a Distinguished Teaching Fellow. The James W. Chesborough Award for Scholarly Distinction in Sexuality Research is presented in his honor by the Central States Communication Association to scholars who have made significant contributions to the study of gender, sexuality, and sexual identity. Dedicated to enhancing the discipline of communication and expanding the scope of its influence, Jim held over 200 service roles throughout his career. He served as president of NCA in 1996 and served on the executive committee and legislative assembly over a 16-year period of time. 
He chaired the Publications Council from 1986 through 1988 and was Director of Educational Services for NCA here in the National Office from 1989 through 1992. He had earlier served as President of the Eastern Communication Association and had co-founded the Speech Communication Association of Puerto Rico. He also served as Editor of Communication Quarterly, Critical Studies in Media Communication, and the Review of Communication at various points throughout his career. Everyone at NCA sends our condolences to Professor Chesbro's family and friends, particularly Jim's husband and partner for nearly 40 years, Donald Bonsell. The family requests that in lieu of flowers, donations may be made to the Terre Haute, Indiana Humane Society. Dr. Kenneth Anderson served as NCA's 69th president in 1983. An Iowa native, Dr. Anderson spent the majority of his long teaching career at the University of Illinois. Following his 1961 doctorate, Dr. Anderson served briefly as a visiting professor at the University of Illinois in Chicago and at the University of Southern California. He then taught at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, before relocating in 1970 to the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, eventually retiring as Professor Emeritus of Communication in 1995. At Illinois, in addition to teaching and administrative appointments in the Department of Communication, he served as an associate dean in the college, interim head of the speech communication department, and later of the speech and hearing science department, and a deputy vice chancellor of academic affairs. Professor Anderson was also active in numerous disciplinary associations, including serving in multiple roles for NCA, such as the finance board chair, convention planner, and president. He was recognized with the association's Distinguished Service Award. In addition, Dr. Anderson served as Executive Secretary, Convention Planner, and President of the Central States Communication Association, and as President of the National Association of Communication Administrators. His focus on communication ethics led him to serve as the Conference Planner and Keynote Speaker at the NCA 1999 Summer Conference that formulated the Credo for Ethical Communication, later adopted by the Association and still in force today. Dr. Anderson believed that this was his greatest enduring contribution to the field of communication. From Dr. Anderson's obituary, there is this quotation that reflects his belief in a life well lived. I have been incredibly lucky in life, my wife, my son, and his family, my profession and chosen discipline, and an incredible range of experiences. As Aristotle stressed in his doctrine of choices, good choices are basic to a good life in a good community. We send our sincerest condolences to Dr. Anderson's family, friends, and colleagues. Memorial contributions may be made to the Kenneth E. and Mary Claren Anderson Fund in support of the Cranert Center for the Performing Arts in Urbana-Champaign. In NCA news, the NCA Year in Review is online and should have arrived in members' mailboxes last month. The Year in Review highlights just some of NCA's 2019 work, including the NCA Public Programs on Environmental Communication, our new Concepts in Communication video series, and a lot of other ways that NCA advances the discipline. Also in NCA News, the Spring Committee on International Discussion and Debate, or CIDD, series will begin later this month, when Japanese students Yuta Watanabe and Takuto Kasahara travel to the United States to visit 11 U.S. host campuses to debate with U.S. students. 
CIDD is one of NCA's oldest programs, and it promotes international understanding and the practice of communication through discussion and debates between students from the United States and other nations. You can discover if a CIDD debate will be happening near you by going to natcom.org CIDD. And listeners, we hope you tune in for the next episode of Communication Matters in just two weeks. I'll be chatting with communication professor emeritus Rick Churwitz from the University of Texas and Catherine Baxter, director of partnerships at the Op-Ed Project, about why it's important for communication scholars to use their expertise to write op-eds and how they can get involved in these public-facing writing projects. Be sure to engage with us on social media by liking us on Facebook, following NCA on Twitter and Instagram, and watching us on YouTube. And before you go, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to listen in as we discuss emerging scholarship, established theory, and new applications, all exploring just how much communication matters in our classrooms, in our communities, and in our world. See you next time. Communication Matters is hosted by NCA Executive Director Trevor Perry Giles and is recorded in our national office in downtown Washington, D.C. The podcast is recorded and produced by Assistant Director for Digital Strategies, Chelsea Bowes, with writing support from Director of External Affairs and Publications, Wendy Fernando, and Content Development Specialist, Grace Hebert. Thank you for listening.